Hello, and welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir, and today we're, what we're going to be speaking about is cartography in the Islamic world in general and in the 15th and 16th century Ottoman Empire in particular. Uh, this is part of our ongoing series on the history of science. Now, many of our listeners may have come across images of Ottoman or Islamic maps. Uh, they might have come across, you know, Portalon charts or the famous kind of TO maps of medieval Europe. Uh, and today we're going to talk about some of these maps, why they might be particularly Islamic or not, uh, how they've been produced, how they were used, what was the relationship between kind of the image and the text, uh, as well as like, you know, why were uh, particular sultans like Mohammed II so interested in them. And our guest today is an expert on this subject, Karen Pinto. She is an assistant professor of history at Boise State University and a former NEH fellow. And she has a forthcoming book on this very topic titled uh, Medieval Islamic Maps and Exploration. It's coming out on University of Chicago Press in 2016. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Nir. It's wonderful to be here. Very exciting opportunity. So let me just start with this question, which you posed at a recent talk, which is what makes Islamic cartography Islamic? What are the kind of the visual conventions of mapping of cartographies of, of the Middle East or of the world? Well, it's a very interesting question because when we say these are Islamic maps, what do we mean by Islamic? And it um, raises questions of how we interpret the word and the question, of course, of some people suggest the use of Islamicate. Uh, as in that, uh, things that were produced by the caliphate. Um, but the contrast is the medieval European maps and the fact that medieval European maps are called medieval European, but they're actually very religious and very mm -hmm. Christian because they have a T in an O, the T uh, um, signifying the crucified body of Christ with the leg of the T representing the Mediterranean. Mm and the on the left representing the Nile, and the arm on the right representing the dawn, tenes, or Bosphorus, as you would wish to interpret it, and they're oriented with east on top because of Jerusalem, and that's where we get to orient a map. The Islamic maps, on the other hand, you know, they don't have any overt representation of any images that we know of. Mm -hmm. um, but oh. when we dig deep, when we start to look at the question of what is Islamic, which is what I... I decided to do, I found there's a number of ways to interpret it. One is we can look at places that have Sufi or Islamic or mythical connotations. Mm -hmm. Places such as the Cave of the Seven Sleepers, which I believe is marked on Islamic maps. Uh, the Some of the maps, such as the map of Egypt, has miniatures. Some versions have miniatures of Moses, the Prophet Moses. Uh, we'll get... Um, uh, creatures with uh, sort of uh, unicorn fish type of creatures in the Mediterranean, uh, spotted, strange spotted leopards below the Nile. They all seem to signify we will see the encircling ocean with big massive fish. Right. And then there is the form that is given to the world itself in the Islamic uh, world maps, which is that of a bird in the maps. Mm. And... People have noticed the bird in the maps. It's been mentioned in some of the geographical texts, but nobody's ever been able to explain why it's there. 
And if you look at the map, we have a copy on the blog site, you'll see the maps point with south on top, the world maps, and the African continent, which arches above, could be seen as the upper wing of the bird. Hmm. The um, Arabian Peninsula would be the head of the bird. The Asian continent is the chest and body of the bird. And then the little piece, which is Europe, is the tail of the bird. And uh, reading Ibn Sina's work, um, his, especially his Neoplatonic philosophy and his poetry and looking at his ode on the bird, you can see this idea of the bird as being the connector between God and uh, hmm. the world, the corrupt world. It's the bird that floats above and is closest to God. Um, and from, from, our, from our vantage point, closer to God. Right. And so, therefore, the world could then be seen in a way as a bird uh, connecting at some level to God. And then behind the bird, we could perhaps very controversially maybe see seriously many, after many levels, like 10 levels of refractions, mm. um, possibly, you know, the heavens with reflections of God. Mm -hmm. So, the water becomes sacred as well. I see. And so when you're pulling these kind of me uh, these visual metaphors from these maps, I mean, uh, I think you mentioned in other places that it has Neopolitanic origins or things like that. I is that correct? Or well, there's uh, some, th that's one of my theories is that it's possibly there's Neoplatonic origins and we can see that in this, mm -hmm. in this mapping. And I'm actually going to be talking about it at length in another book that I'm working on, which is um, what is Islamic about Islamic mm. maps. Oh, great. So, Kind of one of the one of the books that you talk about in often in your articles and in your forthcoming book is this Katab uh, al Masalik wa Mamalik, the book of roots and realms, as it's often uh, called. And you talk about kind of its influence and its kind of importance over the centuries to various kind of Islamic rulers. Could you give us kind of an just a basic overview of what is this book and how was it? Why was it important? And um, yeah, let's start right there. Okay, so we um, we think that the Kitab al-Masalik wal-Mamalik um, uh, tradition uh, started in the 9th and 10th centuries for administrative purposes, to track routes uh, for rulers, to track networks. So um, uh, we have some of the earliest writing, uh, Ibn Khurdad Bey and others were emerging in that context. Eventually, around the 10th, 11th mm -hmm. centuries, they, they are illustrated. And it is in that context that we start to see the cartographically illustrated versions of these manuscripts. Mm. And so what did they choose to depict uh, in these illustrations? So there are usually 21 maps per manuscript. There's a world map and there's 20 regional maps. And the world map will show the entire world, and then the regional maps will be regions of the Islamic world. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if you know, you as these things keep getting copied over the centuries, you know, did the use of them change? Like, how did? What was the kind of? Is there a general trajectory uh, to them? How are different rulers or different, you know, copyists or different artists using the uh, using this genre? And why why is this so important? I mean, to them. Well, this is something that I've brought to the maps. I mean, up until my work, they were seen as all being done. Uh, they were all pegged as 10th century, 11th century. They weren't, uh, there wasn't an effort made to peg them to the time period in which they were made, in hmm. which the manuscripts were made. 
So that's one of my big contributions, to see how the images change depending on the circumstance and time in which they were produced. And when I say the image changes, they're still standard iconographic images, but the variations that take place, um, and I read into those. Could you just give us some examples of those changes? So, for instance, one of the things that I discovered um, and I've written about is a cluster of maps that I found was done in Ottoman Constantinople a decade or two following the conquest. And it's a very interesting cluster. It's a very... Uh, they're not fancy colors. There's no fancy illumination. They seem to have been done for madrasa libraries, that's what I theorize. And the surprise is, why would they have been done when at the same time we know from, our, from the records of Topkapisarai and other, and the archives, we know that there were more mimetic maps coming in from Europe at the time. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the big surprises. I mean, so why, uh, what's your theory? How would these Madrasa students have used them? What was the purpose? Well, we know that Mehmet wanted to uh, make mosque libraries. That was one of his uh, mm -hmm. agendas. He wanted to rebuild Ottoman Constantinople. And he would have needed books to put in these mosque libraries that he was creating. So I think that, um, and this is, and probably through Ali Kushju, who came at his invitation to teach. And he's a famous 15th century astronomer, um, scholar, scholar scientist. scientist figure. I think that perhaps through Ali Khushchu, he may have gotten or seen the first manuscript, mm -hmm. one of these KMMS manuscripts. Or perhaps it came as a gift from the Turkmens, mm -hmm. uh, who were having to, say, to pay him uh, ransoms in which he demanded Muraka and illuminated manuscripts, mm -hmm. possibly like that. But at some point, he made a concerted decision to use these. So with that, we can see that this has become, by this point, a classic, uh, mm. sort of like Homer's Odyssey or the Iliad. It's something that you have in a good... Islamic library, you mm -hmm. have one of these. And since they were done for regular libraries, for the public, they wouldn't have been painted in lapis or gold. Yeah. They would have been done in sort of regular, um, you know, paints and nothing elaborate. So, I mean, but just uh, returning this question, I mean, why why would a madrasa student want to know the shape of the world? I mean, I, I, mean, I think it's an interesting thing because, you know, we think today of maps as sort of uh, for use of navigation. Or you know maybe to get a sense of the whole world. I mean, what was what do you if we try to kind of get into this whatever the social life of maps and so forth? How are they being used? Uh, are these maps portable? How big are these books? Or they uh, do these illustrations exist separately from the books? Could you just give us a bit more of the material, I guess, life and use of the of these maps? Sure. So these maps are found in the manuscripts. And one of the things that people d don't think about, and I've never seen written about, is the idea of the portability of the images themselves, mm. not just the manuscripts. Sometimes they can be quite small, and they could have been carted around. But some of them are more elaborate, especially the earlier versions. They would have been in libraries uh, that were sponsored by amirs and um, uh, people who wanted to open up learning to everybody around them. So you can imagine maybe a scholar coming out from... Uh, the middle of nowhere, coming to acquire learning, going to these libraries, would have been able to read these geographical texts 
And while the material in the geographical text, they would have copied some, perhaps maybe even all if they had the time. Mm -hmm. But one thing they could take very easily with them would be the images because mm. they're, they're symmetric, geometric images which people have laughed at sometimes, right. but they have failed to see the portability of them. You can take them and then you can go to your little village and draw out on in chalk or even on the ground, well, this is what the shape of the world is and this is what the shape of the region we live in hmm. is. So very portable images. I mean, I think that's fascinating. Uh, you know, in my studies of manuscripts and I do some stuff on history of the book, you know, I've always noticed that kind of the uh, I don't really see many limitations in the manuscript format, but one of the things that I do notice is it's actually quite difficult to reproduce images, uh, you know, without uh, woodblock carvings or lithographs or things like this. And I think it's, you know, this appreciating kind of the value of these more schematic maps and not just seeing them as kind of visually inferior is kind of an extremely important point. It's very difficult sometimes, but even though in the Ottoman context, the more mimetic maps are, are discussed more often, such mm -hmm. as Piri Rais right. and other, but even in their work, we can see reflections of Islamic cartography. And we also know that there are regular manuscript copies, like Ibn al-Wardi's uh, manuscripts are widely copied in the Ottoman world. They become little pocket book hmm. editions, and they all have a world map. So it was being used, it was being circulated. And then even in some of the earlier versions of, for instance, the Tomare Humayun, uh, which is considered the first version of the Zubda Tevari, um, has one of these maps in it. So, and it's modified, it's changed, I'm studying it. But the basic um, uh, forms are there. Mm -hmm. So it was being communicated. There was an Islamic cartographic impulse in the Ottoman realm. Mm. And I think it's important to see these. Yeah. Can we just speak about, uh, you mentioned Piri Reis uh, and his map. Um, I mean, this is, uh, you know, one of the kind of famous maps uh, of the, in at least the Ottoman tradition. Could you just describe it? What is different about it? What is, what, you know, why is it a, uh, been given so much attention and you know when you talk about kind of what makes it still part of the Islamic tradition well the periorized map is the one of the earliest extant maps to show the Americas mm -hmm. and in, it's the earliest map to show uh, South America specifically because mm -hmm. we only have a fragment of it so it has garnered a lot of attention. I mean, there have been people such as von Daniken who have looked at how aliens must have made it, you know. I mean, it's one of the most widely uh -huh. known and written about maps. It's garnered a lot of attention. My interest is specifically from the Islamic um, influences right. and looking at that those connections I find fascinating. So it's just a different perspective. So what, I mean, what do you think some of these Islamic uh, connections. Uh, where can we see these Islamic connections in this map, especially, you know, if it's focusing on, um, if w what we've seen is kind of West Africa and uh, South and North America or pieces of those? Well, what I noticed was parallels in some of the illumination um, on the map, certain characters, certain key pieces that I could see coming directly from the KMMS illustrative uh, vocabulary. Mm -hmm. And that caught my attention. And it caught my attention a long time ago, and I noticed it when I was working in Tabka Pisarai, and I thought, it's fascinating to see 
how these images, so what, what was Moses in the uh, Islamic mapping tradition then morphs into a figure of a giant mm. um, in South America in the Piri Reis map. So it's interesting to see these connections in the visual vocabulary. Right. So there's that, there's the mention, he actually makes mention in his text of using certain um, Islamic texts, a certain jarafia. we don't know what those are. Mm -hmm. And so I theorize that he might have been referring to this tradition. So he's taking kind of pieces of the European visual idiom for maps of, you know, putting uh, creatures on the edges of the realms and things like that, and kind of taking um, the patterns and that he has from maps around him and kind of combining the two. Right, right, yeah. So this idea that we are all composed of the things that circulate around us. Right. And how does the how does that come out? How do we how does our mind how do our minds digest this and then put them out? Mm -hmm. Because we are all part of the milieu around us. Of course. Yeah. And all especially in this day and age with all the images and all the information. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, even if we're medievalists, that's still coming out. Right. Welcome back. Uh, I'm speaking with Karen Pinto of Boise State University. We're talking about Islamic cartography, about maps, about their importance in the Ottoman Empire, how people were using them. To kind of restart the conversation, one of the things I've noticed as someone who's, you know, read travelogues and read uh, geographies from the Ottoman period uh, is just how text-focused they are and how rare it is, actually. I almost never see maps in any of the travelogues I read. And there's always this question, you know, this recurring question when we speak about Islamic cartography, you know, kind of what is the importance of text, of description? Uh, what gets chosen to be represented visually on these maps? Uh, what doesn't? Uh, and on the maps themselves, is it just an image or is it, you know, an image with pieces of text in there? It's a variety of things, Nir. It's a number of different things. The question of uh, the relationship of the text, the actual manuscript text and the maps is an open question that hasn't been completely understood and, uh, or answered. And, that, and the reason for that is maps are a limited space. You only get a page or a double page and you can't put all the information that is in the text into the maps. Mm -hmm. So the maps become a very unusual um, entryway, an unusual window into looking at what you could prioritize in the text. So today when we want to prioritize something in the text, we take our highlighters out and we mark up the text, those of us who are willing to brutalize text. And um, at that time they did, they marked up some portions with red, 
but um, right, most of it they don't. Yeah. Most of it they don't. So how do we know what's important? Well, one of the ways to look at what's important is to look at what made it on the map. Mm -hmm. Because maps are limited in terms of space and the cartographer has to select that which will make it on the map versus not. So there are many surprises there because some major places sometimes don't make it onto the hmm. map. And then the other way to look at the question is to look at how they're embedded in the manuscript. So what usually happens is we'll have a header such as uh, Surat al-Maghrib and then the map will take place following the header. So we know that there's a relationship between the section within which the map occurs and the text on mm -hmm. it. But beyond that, the relationship has to be teased out um, looking at each individual map. Hmm. Um, so could you give us, like, I mean, were there places that were specifically important that end up, you know, popping up again and again and again? Um, There's... There's a very interesting place actually. It's called, it's a it's a place called the uh, marking of the Buja. It's an ethnonym, as opposed to a toponym. And um, one of the questions that I came up with was, why would the Buja? We never hear about them in the historical text. Certainly not the secondary text. Even in the primary text, they're very hard to find. Why do they make it onto these maps? And from this question, a very unusual answer emerged it seemed to be less related to their importance and more related to the question of them capturing imagination. Mm. At some point, because they were kind of unruly, uh, it's a long story, you can read my article on it, but they were dragged back to um, the center of, the, of power, Baghdad and, and Samarra, and marched actually from the port up all the way to Samarra. And... Um, they were probably kind of scantily clothed, and we know from the uh, primary text that there was a practice amongst the men of removing nipples. So we figure this must have caused quite a stir, and my theory is that that imagination, the capturing of the imagination, actually put them on the maps. Mm. And then they stayed there, because after a certain point, nobody knew who they were, but the copyists later on were copying them, making errors in their names, right. not quite knowing who they were. And they, that's how they got a birth on the Islamic maps. And um, another kind of question I had, I mean, in these maps, uh, do you see the, clim the, you know, the seven climbs marked out? Do those, does, you know, the, you know, the notion of the temperate climb to the extreme climbs, uh, you know, do, do those go played out? You know, does this become part of the mapping tradition as well? Not in the KMMS mapping tradition. Mm. And it's interesting. So we have the KMMS mapping and tradition that's the on the one hand. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's the Al-Istakhri, uh, Ibn Hakal, Al-Muqaddasi, starting with Al-Balhi, although there's, some, there's a great deal of question about whether Balhi was the architect, and I question that of this tradition. But there is a whole other tradition. There are, al there are maps in the Al-Biruni manuscripts. Mm. There are maps in Yakut. Um, there, there are many other maps. And in, those, in some of those maps, we'll have what we call clean maps, which will mark out the cleams. So they're a different mapping tradition. And, I mean, do they interact? Or are they kind of separate things? Or how separate are these traditions? Or are they... I mean, are they used for different reasons and different times and things like that? 
I think so. I think that we are looking at uh, mapping traditions that focus on different parts of the world, have been generated from different parts mm -hmm. of the world, and were being used in different parts of the world. So I think they, they do have uh, different trajectories. And um, in particular, there is this question about the KMMS maps versus the Al-Biruni maps, which I've been exploring. And there is also the question of when these merge. Now, they don't merge in any... We can't pinpoint and say, here's a map that is emerging. We have one map, actually. There is a map in a Timurid manuscript which has uh, a graticule and has clean markings as well as having the iconographic forms. But the earliest we see it is about the 15th century, 15th, mm. 16th. But it's not very frequent and you don't see clear examples. And then, of course, you have later forms developing which seem to be based on these two traditions, but they're developing another form. It's another story in the Iranian mapping traditions, the latest Safavid mapping traditions, etc. It's a very interesting, fascinating story, the story of maps. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, when we're talking about these mapping traditions, kind of who was making these maps? Because I know, obviously, you know, you have the text, you have uh, these maps in books, uh, but was it just the copyists uh, creating these maps? Were there specific artists, uh, in, you know, in workshops that were uh, responsible for maps? How much can we find out about the people that are actually trying to create these, these maps? Well, one thing we can look at, um, and these, these manuscripts, they will sometimes give us the name of a copyist, but very often not. Mm. And sometimes the copier will just use the name of the earlier copyist and not give their name. So we don't often have a lot of information. And we have to deduce that information. And one way to deduce it is through illumination styles. Mm. But again, we can deduce by illumination styles and usually we can come up with a school or an area in which right. they were produced. But a specific artist is rarer, but sometimes it does happen. And one way to uh, find those is to look at the manuscripts that have miniature illustrations. So not just the images of the maps, but actually little uh, miniature illustrations which can be linked hmm. back to specific artists. And this is something that, you know, is, is it's, it's challenging. It's even challenging in Islamic art history. So I have sometimes been able to link them to other manuscripts. Could you give us just one example of what you've been able to piece together? This very fascinating Timurid, late Timurid manuscript that I think uh, Piri Reis might have had access to. There's some very interesting characters on it. And I've seen uh, versions of those characters, very close parallels in Timurid mini miniature painting. So, they, you know, you can, you can trace them like that. I see. And by characters, you mean like script writing... No, I or, mean uh, oh, okay. Uh, figures. Okay, figures. Not calligraphy. Got it. I mean actual figures. So the figure of prophets or animals or trees. Mm -hmm. Trees less so, they're harder. Mountains sometimes can be harder because there's so many, um, you know, examples. But sometimes we can even peg right. uh, these mountains, you know, with faces in them that are so typical of the Timurid structure. 
we can we have the timid art um, of their discourse, visual discourse. We can sometimes peg them. So. So it seems like when people were making maps, they had access to all sorts of different map making traditions, the different. Uh, exemplars either in different manuscripts and things like that. And it raises a very interesting question mm -hmm. that we don't often think about in the modern period because we think of cartography as a technical science, as an exact science mm. of some sort. We don't think of cartography as an art. Right. And yet these maps were done by artists. Now, if you look even at early modern cartography or modern cartography in America, you'll find that actually there is a lot of intersection. Right. And for instance, if you take a look at the New York subway map, I don't know if you know that it was painted by, it was done by a Japanese painter. Right. I know because I met the Japanese <laughs> painter, so I know the connection. And I think we forget sometimes about the connection between this, the, the artist and the scientist, right. and maps provide that connection. It's a way to see it. Yeah, and I think so much of uh, recent scholarship in history of science has really been trying to emphasize the necessity of understanding the role of visual images and conveying information for scientists of how scientists use uh, different types of visual representations in their works, uh, in their thinking, and so forth. And I think this really speaks to that. That's excellent news. Mm -hmm. Uh, the other side of the issue hasn't been handled as well. Islamic art historians don't take uh, uh, Islamic science and history of science images and mm. look at them closely. Mm. Um, so it would be very good if they could be more of a merging of the fields. Mm -hmm. Now that we've spoken so much about kind of these different traditions, about all these different sources of information, so we've spoken, you know, about this notion of kind of an Islamic cartography. Maybe you can just kind of zoom out and give us a notion of, you know, what, how does this relate to other uh, pre-modern cartographic traditions to, you know, people know about kind of Greek or Roman map making, Chinese map making. Where, do, where does this all fit in? How do we place it in a global landscape? Yes, this is also um, a, a very, I think, important um, issue. And it's something that I've been looking at. And many moons ago, I was at an international history of cartography conference where a well-known uh, theorist in history of cartography, Christian Jacob, posed the question, what if we take a take drop some Chinese cartography and Indian cartography and ancient Greek cartography and Roman cartography and Mesopotamian cartography and um, Egyptian cartography and put it together, what do we get? Mm -hmm. And I immediately thought, we get Islamic cartography, because that's what Islamic cartography is. It is the fusion of all these traditions, but it is also bringing to the fore new information, because it passes that information back to other cartographic traditions. Mm. So there is, there is the, it's a two-way street, it's not a one-way street. Mm -hmm. But it's important to understand that Islamic cartography emerges from that context and we can find bits of all of this in Islamic cartography and that's what makes it so rich and so exciting to work on. Well, um, with that, I think we'll wrap it up. For those listeners that want to learn more about the subject, I highly recommend that you read Karen Pinto's uh, upcoming book with the University of Chicago Press and that's coming out in 2016. It's called Medieval Islamic Maps and Exploration uh, for those listeners that would like to see more of these maps, we're going to have some images up on our website, along with a very short bibliography uh, for those of you that want to learn and read more. 
I encourage our listeners to go to our Facebook group, um, find the Ottoman History Podcast on Facebook. You can join a community of other listeners uh, and join the conversation that we're having on, on our Facebook page. And on behalf of the entire Ottoman History Podcast team, I wish you a good night. Thank you. Thank you.